Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Word on the Hill podcast with the link. Hey guys, dude, that was awesome. Thanks, man. I felt uh, like I felt like you almost went into old, old timey mode. I know it just it didn't feel right though. It almost felt like we could put a little filter on it, and it was like the radio. But then I wanted seventy sportscaster mode. Oh, I've got oh. different genres floating around <laughs> up there. Anyway, dude, this is Dr. Scott Powell, uh, and that was his blue steel. And I'm Father <laughs> Peter Moss, and this is my magnum. Ooh, well played. See how Good we say we played that? I do. That seems appropriate for. Uh, for, <laughs> for the, the Sunday of the Lord's Passion. <laughs> Which is, we're putting... Which the, it sounded really bad when I just said it that way. Yeah. I didn't mean it in any negative sense. I meant it nonsensically, <laughs> but it came out weird. Yeah, it really did, didn't it? Yeah, Man. I, I can't t- quite tell why. Uh, well, um, <clears throat> this, it, it, it's like, it's kind of one of those things where, like, how do you meditate on the Passion and still remain us? It's, uh, I don't know. We'll find out. Yeah, I guess we'll find <laughs> we out. Just, we just start going. Well, That's like, how you do it. You just start. Well, How do you eat an elephant, Father Peter? You start by um, shooting it. <laughs> do you not know this one? One bite at a time. Yes, I know. Peter. How do you eat an elephant? Well, I was. Well, I I went into process mode. I started getting analytical, and I was like, "Well, do you do it with a bow and arrow?" I, I and then see I was like, "No." And so, um, today we are uh, the Sunday of the Lord's Passion. You better believe we are. And uh, that is the beginning of Holy Week. I was as I was preparing, I was like. Oh, Lent's almost over. Lent's all, I know, it kind of snuck up on me. No, it did kind of sneak up. It did. And I was like, wait, why is this one red? L- oh, right. <laughs> As I was looking at the liturgical calendar in the sea of purple, there's one red day. Oh, I was like, I, I thought you meant Lent snuck up on you. No, and I was like, I was no, like, no, Lent, I've known about it. I'm like, I heard about Lent. <laughs> <laughs> I heard about this Lent yeah, thing. No, I've, I've been here. Yeah. But Palm Sunday, yo, what, I don't know what I said. Palm Sunday snuck up. Um, okay, so the real question, so... Mm, we haven't talked about this. Yo. We really have five readings today. Mm. So we haven't really discussed what we're going to discuss. You know what I mean? Because there's the, pre, the pregame reading. The outside. I don't know what you call it. The, at the procession the, with the I palms. The pregame. <laughs> the pregame. <laughs> we have pregame gospel. We do have pregame. Isn't it kind of? It is. It's the tailgate version. Um, no, that's a bad. The t- <laughs> none of this is working. None of this. None of these are taking. This no, is Palm Sunday for I Pete's know, sake. Take I know, it seriously, Scott. <laughs> Scott, come on. Oh my dude. gosh! All right, it no, is that's Palm what, Sunday. That's what I was meditating on before with you. Is like, it's like, we're just so we're, we like to crack jokes, and we're we're not irreverent, but we're but we're funny. But we're not reverent. <laughs> we're not irreverent. <laughs> yeah, uh, we're not irreligious. We're religious. Yeah, we'll go with that. <laughs> Let's do that. Well, we know that Easter Sunday's coming, so we can have a bit of a levity. Not with the passion itself. Oh, see, the passion has no levity, but we can we can be lev. Levity. The fruit of the passion is levity. Uh, it, sure, but the growth process is difficult. It's tricky. Whoa! All right. Well, let, we should tell the readings. Okay. So the first, well, the pregame reading. The what? What does this have a title? Or Pers- just it's the reading at the procession with psalms. I think that is the palms, technical. Palms, not what psalms. What did I say? Psalms. <laughs> palms. At the procession with psalms. No, the procession with palms, bro. With palms. All right. Uh, so that first gospel reading is from Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. But you can also choose John 12, 12 oh, through can, 16. Which is very short. Yep. And then our first reading at, yeah. the, at the Mass is Isaiah 50, 4 through 7. One of the suffering servant psalms. Yes. Songs. 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 Our responsorial psalm 
is there's a lot of psalm psalms psalms <laughs> psalms songs, and palms and songs, songs and palms and psalms dude that's uh, what we can call it the podcast songs and psalms and palms yeah that's good i like oh i gotta remember that we always say this in the podcast and then when it comes time to edit it and actually title it i always forget what we'd say <laughs> okay and it's hard to find it okay psalms and songs and palms uh psalm 22 verses 8 through 9 17 through 18 19 through 20 and then 23 through 24 Followed gloriously by mm. the Philippians. Man, that's one of my very favorite the the um the readings from the Canonic Hymn. The Hymn. <laughs> the Canonic Hymn. Canonic Hymn. That's what it's called. Dude, that is that, is that like the mysterious me? The Canonic Hymn. H I M. Dude, that's despicable like, me. Uh, <laughs> What did I say? What mysterious me? Yeah, I don't know what. It, I what could, is that? I don't know. I oh, was, I figured it was one of your obscure references, like the V miniseries that you. <laughs> we were talking about the versicle and the V in your hymnals. Oh, is that how that came up? Yeah. Oh, okay. And then we were talking about because the passion done in parts. I said, I said, hey, are we just going to read the passion in parts and call that our 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 um, podcast today? Oh, the V. Yeah, that V. Yeah, not the versicle. You mentioned versicles, but but the V is the versicle. It's the voice in the passion narrative, though. Yes, but the the character Granted. with an R and a slash or a V and a slash is called a versicle. That's no, it's not. It is a versicle. Wait, I thought you told me that was a made up term. No, the responsicle is oh, the responsicle. one. That's what. Okay, thank you. Versicle is is, Versicle's is, is, real is a type is, is a typographic term for that style of letter. So I'm not that crazy thinking the responsicle could be a thing if there's a thing called a versicle. Right. Okay. Absolutely. As long as that's cleared up. You because podcast <laughs> listeners regularly make fun of me still for that, and whenever I travel, they'll find me and point out how ridiculous it was that I believed you. <laughs> So this is there's good reason to have believed you because of the versicle. This is my defense. I All right, that's a good defense. What's the canonic hymn? The Philippians. Yeah, yeah. Did we? I don't think we said two that. through six through eleven. Thanks, man. All right, and our gospel, our second gospel, is coming from Mark chapter fourteen, one through fifteen forty-seven, which, if you're counting, is actually forty-eight verses. That's a lot of verses. It's a decent amount of ver- versicles. No, just verses. Hold on, fourteen one to fifteen forty seven. But that's didn't I say that? Oh, that's that's double just, that, double yeah. that for the whole chapter a, fourteen plus forty eight things. You're right. That's a lot of math for a theologian to do. It's a little bit too much. It's a little bit early. <laughs> it's a little no, bit. It's, it's twelve twenty. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. So are we going to say a word about uh, the opening? Um, this is the Palm Sunday narrative when Jesus processes into Jerusalem. Yeah, I I always think it's worth it. I mean, this is a really exciting. It's it, it, the this is what's so cool about Palm Sunday is it always begins so exultant. Yeah, you're, you're like, so we thought that we Jesus begins. Yep, Passion Week by coming into the city like a king, and having all of these symbol symbolic things. Everybody's like. Who is this guy? That's your part that you always love talking about. So I talk do. about that part. Well, well, that's in Matthew's gospel, which is still, you know, I mean, all of the gospel writers are giving us slightly different perspectives on the same story, which is beautiful. But yeah, and, and this is the thing that's funny about it. He is acting like a king. People are recognizing him as a king. He's been proclaiming himself to, 
he's been acting like Messiah for a long time now. People are picking up on this, but what people miss is that there's there's probably hundreds of people claiming to be Messiah, right. most of whom have far more attractive messages than Jesus does, right. which are not forgive your enemies, love those who hate you, pray for those who are trying to persecute you. It's take up arms and throw down the enemy and take over Caesar's throne and bring down, you know, destroy, fight. You know, these are the popular messages. Yet, um, Jesus does something that no one else seems to have the courage to do on Palm Sunday, which is why in Matthew's gospel, when Jesus processes it, now granted, I'm sure there's lots of people with him who know who he is. But if you read Matthew's version of it, people are... They see him coming. He's riding on a donkey. They're waving palm branches. They're shouting Hosanna. And they're saying to themselves, who the heck is this? Right. Which is weird because we always sort of read this, or at least I grew up on this, thinking, oh, everyone knows Jesus. He's really popular. Everybody's heard of him. They see the miracles. But they don't. There's no social media. There's no, you know, newspapers. They haven't heard about this stuff. Maybe a couple of them have heard inklings. But there's lots of people claiming to do what Jesus is claiming to do and doing it, at least in the eyes of the world, better than he is. So this guy shows up and everyone's like, who is this guy? But here's the thing. The riding on the donkey is kind of the key component because in a pilgrim feast, so this is the Passover, right? Everyone is coming in preparing for the Passover celebration. Everybody's walking on foot. Because it's a pilgrimage, and pilgrimage implies feet. And there's one guy in this crowd of probably thousands of people heading into Jerusalem that day who's riding on a donkey, and it's only Jesus. Which, you know, we, we think of the donkey, and there's this passage from Zechariah, and all this is true. We think of this as this great sign of humility, which it is. But it's not just a sign of humility. Right. It's a sign of royalty. Because only kings are allowed to ride donkeys into Jerusalem particularly on a pilgrim feast. Right. And so when Jesus is doing this, everyone's like, oh my gosh, we don't know who this guy is, but there's all these voices claiming to be king, claiming to be the one that are going to defeat our enemies once and for all. No one has ever had the guts to ride a royal donkey into the city of Jerusalem under the Roman occupation, under Herod's nose. And everyone's like, this guy's either going to do something huge or he's going to die trying. And one way or the other, we want to witness it. We want to watch. And everyone's like, whoa, this guy's actually going for it. Right. I don't think we can fully appreciate how big of a deal this actually is. And they're probably thinking, well, he's either going to accomplish something or he's going to be on a cross in a couple days. And guess what? He was both, both. are true. Yes. <laughs> Which is kind of what's beautiful about this. And so we start exultantly, but then it takes a huge turn immediately. Yeah. And and what I love about it liturgically is that that's we actually experience it. We are the ones that are hearing this and actually experience We have our palms in our hands as we're outside of the church or depending on how your church does it. We are the crowd with the exultant worship with our palms and then we're also going to be the same people who are shouting crucify him later on in the gospel reading. Right. We actually embody both in the one liturgy, which is which is right. Right. Because we are both, and this is the life of the human being, and we do this stuff. Well, speak for yourself, man. Oh, come on, man. I don't ever use. The, I don't ever speak those parts. Of or, course, I, I do carry those. I, I do. I know. I know. I know. Okay, but now gets, we got to rewind. Okay, yeah, we go to Isaiah. We rewind to Isaiah. This is one of the servants' suffering servant songs. <laughs> yeah. So tell me about. Tell me like how that structure fits in. How so? You mean like like um, so. So in Isaiah, we have like we have this image of the suffering servant, and so it's kind of dotted throughout the book of Isaiah. Yeah, this, these songs about the servant who's going to have these horrible things happen. There's to him. four of them. Okay, and and here's the thing about the servant songs. Now, 
I don't, I mean, you, you can probably get somebody to give you a straighter answer. I don't get the sense that any of Israel really entirely knew what to do with the servant songs. Mm. In a certain sense, yeah, they represent Israel, who is suffering. But in another sense, they also, everyone sort of understands, represent this messianic age when God's going to come and fix things. But no one quite knows how to compartmentalize the idea that there is this... Uh, this servant who is suffering but is also going to be vindicated and glorified. So, I mean, I think the way that most people would read this are like, oh, this is us. We are God's servant. That's what Israel is, right? It's God's servant. We are God's people, and we are getting beat up by foreign occupiers, by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians. You know, before that, it was the Egyptians. Take your pick. They're like, we're the suffering servant. But what we need to recognize about Jewish uh, uh, Israelite theology is that the king— always embodies his people. And so if they're reading this servant song, they're like, oh, this suffering servant is us. And you read these servant songs, they're like, but eventually the servant's going to be vindicated. But theologically, the king is always supposed to represent his people. And so what this is pointing to, of course, is when God, the king of kings, will embody Israel and be the servant. Because everyone's expectation was that, well, someday this king is going to come and he's going to lift us out of all this stuff. He's going to end all the suffering and he's going to take this all away and he's going to defeat the enemies. Nobody really expected that the king was going to undergo all of the sufferings on behalf of. That's what's unexpected. So we can read it in hindsight and be like, holy cow, this is amazing. I mean, line for line in these psalms, songs. um, But this one is actually really interesting to me. This is the third of four that Isaiah gives us. And it begins by saying, the Lord has given me a well-trained tongue that I may know how to speak to the weary, a word that will rouse them. And the reason I think this is kind of interesting, as we enter into the passion narrative and, and Holy Week, Jesus doesn't say a whole lot during the passion. He says a lot during Holy Week and when he's kind of going back and forth with the religious leaders and the Pharisees and they're debating mm. and arguing. But during the passion itself, he doesn't say a whole lot. And I think it's telling this song, he's given me a well-trained tongue. Meaning that he knows when to keep his mouth open and to when to not actually speak. Right. Because he doesn't need to defend himself. This is the beauty of the passion, that Jesus is undergoing the mm. sufferings of all of his people. And he looks like he's being utterly brutalized. But if you read closely, the Gospels are going out of their way to show you that he is in control of everything. I, I was reading uh, just, just a, a couple weeks ago, I, was, I, I think it was in Mark. No, it is in Matthew. I can't remember. The scene in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember this? When, I want to say it's Matthew. When they're in, they're going to Gethsemane and the soldiers come and Judas is leading the soldiers who are going to arrest him. And they're like, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he's like, I am he. And do you remember what happens to all the soldiers? They fall down. They're they? dr- he drops them. Right. with Literally by simply saying the holy name. I am and they're dropped to the ground, which is <laughs> the gospel's subtle way of showing you who's in control of this entire thing. Jesus isn't being overpowered. He's not being taken over. He's not being, you know, taken somehow. Oh, they got me. They duped me. No, he says a word out of his mouth and he drops every soldier to the ground. He's completely in control. But the Lord has given me a well-trained tongue and I'm going to hold it for now, he says. And I like the the translation to it says that... Uh, I have not rebelled. I have not turned back. I gave my back to those who beat me. But who has given his back? He has, he's not, again, it's not them doing it to him. He has freely given it. Yeah. Well, that's the thing that he has, he has not closed his ears. The phrase I've not turned back, meaning that I know the, the mission that I have before me, I have not turned that. 
rather that like, and this is what's wild is it's a prophecy. So it's like, how do you even understand that we have the light of the gospel and the light of truth and the light of these years of reflection, but to, to even to consider like his mission was so thoroughly kind of imbued into his life that he said, I will, I'll give my back to those who beat me and my beard, who those, my cheeks to those who pluck my beard. And, and like, and I'm not, and I'm going to do that even if it means that I am going to have to endure this passion, which we're, we're entering into. Which is so theologically significant because again, I think it's easy for Christians to fall into this understanding that we believe in a God who's kind of a doormat. Like, oh, he just totally got overtaken and, and suffered and was beaten and was, and, and lost. Now he didn't lose anything. Again, like you said, he freely gave. It's the difference between Jesus is sacrificed and Jesus chooses to sacrifice himself. Does that make sense? It's an important nuance, though, theologically, that we get. Right. Um, there's a, the, the kind of uh, one of the foil verses here. At the end of the first reading, it says, I have, set my fla- I have set my face like flint, knowing that I will not be put to shame. Which I love that. I, I know how this is going to end. I know the end result of this whole story. But I've set my face, um, at least in Luke's gospel, <coughs> the moment that Jesus turns to head toward Jerusalem where he's going to undergo the passion, Luke tells you he set his face. And it's actually chapters before he actually shows up in Jerusalem, but it's the subtle reference to, yeah, this is the suffering servant. He's setting his face and he knows where it's going to end ultimately. Mm. It's a beautiful connection that the gospels use, mm. which actually is, I think, kind of a perfect segue into Psalm 22. Which is like the the psalm that, I love the fact that we, you know, the the line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, yeah. is the end of Psalm 22. It's the beginning of Psalm Sorry, 22. the beginning of Psalm 22, yeah. which means that, um, gosh, you, Scott, you, I have these like parts that you've taught me, but I don't have the details. I paint with a wide brush. And I remember us talking on the podcast before about how, how that there's a series of psalms that Jesus would have been possibly reciting that as as we go and that when we see Psalm 22 and he's on the cross and and we're re- reading Psalm 22 is that, that there are these ones but I can't remember what the series is. Yeah, so and this is a theory. First of all, it should be said Psalm 22 on its own, even if he reads nothing else. Psalm 22, again, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, abandoned me? And you read through and it, it I mean, it's... It starts off so rough, but it comes to this place of where, but regardless, I'm going to praise my God. But it's so specific. It's so specific. They have pierced my hands. I can number my bones. They've, I mean, line Cast by line. lost for my garments. It's so, I mean, you can't, th- th- those in the theological school of thought that think, oh, Jesus is falling into despair. No, again, Psalm, the fact that he quotes Psalm 22 should show you in this incredibly profound way that he knows exactly what's happening and he is in control of all of it because Psalm 22 is so specific about precisely what's happening. This is also the thing where this is a community of people who are seeing this, the religious leadership and who, who are everyday folks. Yeah. They say like, uh, you know, I got a blank check, baby. And I'll write your name. You know what I'm saying? Like I can sing that and you know how to finish that song. Yeah. 
you know. Yeah, we just it, we just did that with uh, Goodwill Hunting earlier. You yeah. said this line that reminded me of another line from Goodwill Hunting, and then we kind of kept going. But this is we do this culturally, but they did this all the time with the scriptures, right? So so Jesus on the cross saying, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" Now all of a sudden they're going to leap, and they were like, they tore hands in my yes, uh, they tore holes in my hands, and they cast lots, and fierce dogs surround me, and like, and they're like, "Oh, whoa!" There's something like like if you had eyes to see in this moment you would be like hold on this is a prophecy being fulfilled before my very eyes totally um your question before though uh and and again this is a theory but so matthew and mark i believe have jesus saying psalm 22 from the cross in luke's gospel he reads psalm 31 which is actually similar in theme. Uh, it's where he said he 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 closes by saying, "Into your hands, Lord, I commend my spirit." Right from Psalm thirty-one. So there's a tradition, small t tradition, that during his time on the cross, Jesus actually might have been reciting everything from Psalm twenty-two through Psalm thirty-one, because these are the two that the gospel writers give us. And maybe he's actually doing all of them, which read together, you see this narrative of, again, it's not called the suffering servant like Isaiah says, but it is the suffering servant taking on all of these sufferings and being vindicated and given over to God and and, and glorified in this way. 22 to 31. 22 to 31, which is kind of cool. Well, I'm going to do that on Good Friday. I want to like... I think it's appropriate. I think that that actually is a really kind of beautiful religious practice that... That uh, that allows me allows us to enter into the kenosis of the that like like that's the wild part is we know that Jesus was up on the mountain praying psalms with loud cries and and tears to the yeah. Father and and that as he was engaging like he had never had any mystery in his eyes about what he was going to have to do. It didn't make it any easier. No. Didn't make it any, any less painful. I mean, he still sweats blood because this is so intense. And this is the, but he's I, in control. Yeah, I want to actually say, like, I really believe this wholeheartedly. You know how like, we we go to mass, and we believe in memoriam that that we are present to the reality of Jesus Christ's passion within the mass. Yeah, and that we are that we get a chance to receive from the fruit of the cross in a in real sacred time, in reality, in the flesh. I think that any meditation on the passion that we do is is an actual accompaniment with Christ. That hmm. I, that like I always have this vision of how Jesus um, is. Uh, that that anybody who has spent time comforting and loving and trying to understand and weeping as hmm. Jesus goes through his passion, that we are mystically yeah. present, and that yeah. if you could see that moment, you would see the entirety of the church gathered around. Loving her, the the this cannot this canonic gift, this full self emptying of Christ in in response to be able to understand this moment and to see it in all its full potency. Yeah, and that's the thing that's so important about Paul's reading here from Philippians is that you know this hymn of self emptying that. And you, you just reference point, it's that one that begins by saying, Jesus Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. And really the better translation is grasped at. Um, in other words, he doesn't, Jesus is God. He's not just in the form of God. He is God. And it says he didn't equa- count equality with God as something to be exploited. Is a good translation. Grasped at, grabbed at. This is the, the biblical story, right? People grabbing after things, exploiting things, taking what they want, right? Right. Jesus is saying, no, I am God. I don't need to grasp at anything. But when they're torturing me and they're spitting upon me and mm. they're beating me, I could call for a bolt of lightning to take them all out instantly. Right. But I'm not going to. I'm not going to exploit that. Rather, 
I'm going to empty myself. And this is Paul's reflection. I'm going to take the form of a slave, a human being in likeness, but that's not even enough. I'm then going to become obedient to death, even death on a cross, the most humiliating, utterly demoralizing, dehumanizing thing you could possibly do. But this is the beauty of the canonic hymn for Paul. Um, and it says because of this in our translation, but the better word is therefore. And I always had, uh, I had a English teacher once who always said, whenever you see the word therefore, you have to ask, what is it? Therefore. What is it therefore? Because it's always a turning point. It's always the hinge, right? Of a piece of writing. So he exalt, he, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, death on a cross, the most humiliating death possible. And then you get the hinge. Because of that, therefore, because of that move, God, actually in Greek it says, he super exalted him. So you can picture this this kind of pendulum. He goes down and because he hits the lowest point, he is now super exalted back up. Because of that, not in spite of it. And that's the thing theologically that's important. It's not just this hiccup in salvation history. Like, oh boy, we're off track because he got crucified, but he's back on track. He rose again. It's cool. He's like, no, he's in control of that. And he's actually going to use that low point as the, the, the fulcrum that actually switches everything and turns everything around. And so because of that, God super exalts him, bestows on him the name that's above every other name. Then in the name of Jesus, every knee should bend, including the Roman centurion, who was one of the first ones to profess faith in Jesus as he's hanging on the cross. Mm. The Roman centurion, who is only in Matthew, I believe, he's one of my favorite characters in the entire Bible because he gets the canonic hymn long before the canonic hymn was ever a thing. Yeah. Because notice that this Roman soldier who's standing there witnessing all these things that are transpiring, hearing Jesus reciting the Psalms, witnessing the whole deal, has not seen the resurrection, does not know that in three days he's going to rise from the dead. Without that window of faith, yet he sees Jesus and he sees this moment of Paul, him emptying himself to the point of death, death on a cross. And the Roman centurion says, oh, that's the son of God. Without even being able to see the fruit of the resurrection, the fruit of the resurrection. He doesn't know that yet, which makes it one of the most profound statements of faith in the entirety of the scriptures. Because, and I wonder, don't you ever wonder what is it that the Roman centurion is seeing that makes him make that profession of faith? Because he sees the moment that the fulcrum's at its lowest point. And that's the moment he says, oh, I get it. I see it. As you're talking, one of the things that moves in my heart and mind are, is is the fact. Sorry, my grammar was bad. Is the fact that <laughs> a Roman centurion would have been uniquely suited to understand what sort of temperament a man would endure as he went through suffering. Uh, that's a that's a good point. That that mm. that these this mm. is the crucifixion crew. This isn't. He knows the gig. He's seen this a million times, probably. Th- th- this is what they do. The crucifixion crew. Like the, you know, it's like that's his detail. He probably hated it. You know, nobody yeah. nobody liked that, but he had to do it because he he was a. Oh. So he saw what humanity actually looked like. Ooh. At it at its lowest fulcrum, and out wow. of his own perception and his eyes his and experience. his vision, his own experience, he would have seen and understood. And he 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 was stationed in Jerusalem, yeah. so he probably had exposure to the scriptures of the of the Jews. He certainly knew all of these murmurings of all these false messiahs who were making a big talking a big talk, right? And and like yeah. and and he probably even heard them sing their songs and sing Psalm twenty two. 
and Ooh. and he they cast lots and they divided their clothes among him and he was there and like he was processing this and then saw the blood and water and and then realized and recognized the dignity by which he made a self gift yeah. like cuz you you got to imagine that even just the, just the contrast between the two thieves on either side the, to see somebody make a gift of themselves is a totally different act than seeing somebody um, having their life ripped away from them. Yeah. So I don't know, as you say that, I think that it's like his unique gift of sight in that moment from all these things was a great gift for his faith. And so yeah. that, so that, because others, we, we, we all have a, a unique perspective. I mean, I think that that's why I, it's fun to listen to you, Scott, because you have a unique perspective. And, and uh, you, Father Peter. Well, thank you. I enjoy listening to myself as well. Like, uh, <laughs> that's a great insight, though. The centurion does show up in this gospel. I got really worried. I was like, shoot, what if he's not in this one? <laughs> he is. It's cool. That's good. But yeah, that's uh, yeah, interesting. Suited. Which... um makes that a nice reflection even for the gospel reading that we're doing. So I was thinking about the gospel and how do you, how do you do this? And we're on a, I mean, this is a long gospel. I mean, it's it's chock full of so many symbols and, and so many acts and deeds of the Lord that how do you even process that? Which is actually the purpose of Holy Week, by the way. Right. To process through all of this stuff. Because what happens Mm. is we get a, we get an overture of the entirety of it. Yeah. And then we focus in. It's kind of like the. It's kind of like Genesis. We get the full seven days of creation, but then we zoom in, yeah. and then we yeah, get yeah, yeah. we get a chance to go through over the the next days, the next yes. seven days, the specific reality of what took place over that those moments of creation. Yeah. And and in a real way, I think that that's what Holy Week is is imaging is is showing us the new creation. Yes. But but by doing that, we have to actually see and frame it out and understand how things are going. Yeah. So that being said, I only have one thing I wanted to note about the gospel. Okay. Because again, there's a million things. Right. And we already talked about the centurion, which is ah, uh, this is a really good one. Yeah. But I wanted to just note, and I, I don't know why this is it's one of my favorite stories in the gospels. It's this weird one that doesn't seem to fit about um this woman at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, which is where Mark begins, which reading through this my logical side of my brain was like, why don't you just skip over that and go straight into the passion narrative, into the you know into the meat of it? But they start with this weird scene and of this uh, him sitting at this house of this guy named Simon in a place called Bethany. And I just want to say a word about it because it's one of my favorite stories. Okay, so I'm I'm thrilled. It says when he was in Bethany, and this is a couple lines into it, right? When he was in Beth- Bethany, is one of the suburbs just outside of Jerusalem. It's where uh, um, what's their faces. Martha and Mary and Lazarus all live. So he's in Bethany a lot. So he's at Bethany with some guy named Simon. And it says, A woman came with an alabaster jar of perfumed oil, costly, genuine spikenard. (laughs) It's good oil. It's good stuff, right? And it says, She broke the alabaster jar and she poured it on his head. And some of them who were with, uh, some who were there were indignant. I think one of the Gospels points out that Judas in particular is ticked off at this. Right. Some were indignant and they said, why has there been this waste of perfumed oil? It could have been sold for more than 300 days wages and given to the poor. And they were infuriated with her. And Jesus is like, leave her alone. Why do you make trouble? She's done a good thing. The poor you'll always have. You won't always have me. She's done what she could. She anointed my body beforehand for burial. And I say to you, whatever, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, what she has done to me, it will be told in memory of her. And, you know, once you know it's Judas who's grumbling that that could have been used for the poor, you're like, oh, Judas is such a jerk. And yeah, just let her pour oil over him. 
And I, I feel like we've talked about this scene before, but what the here's the, the key to the whole scene. Some lady shows up in somebody's house. She pours this oil all over Jesus. And then it points out that it would have it was worth more than 300 days wages, which doesn't mean a whole lot to us. But if you actually take that apart, 300 days wages, that means it's the equivalent of about a, about a year's wages for a worker, which means that this oil that she just dumped out over Jesus is worth somewhere in the ballpark of $30,000. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, man, maybe we could use that for, some, for something else. Yeah. And you can kind of see the indignancy of the apostles. And they're like, what the heck are you doing? Which raises all these questions of like, well, why did she do this? Well, she's anointing with the best of what she has. But the question, we don't know much about this woman. There's lots of speculation on, you know, what's her deal? What's her past? What's her situation? But why would this woman have something worth $30,000? Well, I'm of the opinion that some people say, well, she's a prostitute. And this is the money she's made off prostitution. I don't know. Maybe. There's lots of traditions. But the only reason I can think of that a woman like this would have something that valuable would be if it was her dowry. And, you know, a family would often give a dowry to um, set a husband and wife up toward their marriage, which means if that's true, then she's actually literally pouring her whole future and her whole life onto Jesus. Mm. There's a story that appears a couple chapters before this in Mark's gospel, the, the widows might remember that story where they're all sitting around the I, temple. I, I might remember all that story. Right, let's see what you did there. But they're all sitting around the temple and they're looking at the treasury and there's all these Pharisees and religious leaders that are pouring in their big coins and trying to be as loud as they can to make sure everybody hears how much money they're giving. And then this woman walks up with two copper pennies, which equal a, a one cent or something. And she puts them in and Jesus points to her and she's like, everybody else gave out of their excess, but she, she gave out of her want. She has given, he says, her whole life. And he uses the Greek word bios, her, her biology, literally her whole self. So there's this woman in chapter 12 who gives her whole self to a temple. And then right after that, in Mark's gospel, Jesus predicts that that temple is going to be destroyed, the physical brick and mortar temple. A woman gives her whole life to the temple and it's going to be destroyed. And then if you fast forward two or three chapters to this, you have another woman who, if my theory is right about the dowry, gives her whole life to Jesus. Mm. What is Jesus? The new temple. What happens to him in the next chapter? He's destroyed. Two women who give a gift of themselves to two different temples, both of whom will be destroyed. But Jesus is the only temple that's actually going to be rebuilt. And so her gift of her whole self actually becomes not just her sacrifice, but her sacrifice, which will be his anointing for what is to come. You're not just giving your whole self to the temple. You are anointing this temple, which will be destroyed and then raised back up with costly oil. And it's that moment that kind of sets you up for the entirety of the passion narrative. And this question of, you know, especially as we enter into Holy Week, what are we willing to pour out for Jesus? What are we willing to give to that temple? This is what we should have been preparing for all Lent in a certain sense. What are we willing to pour out of our lives or give up or sacrifice in the person of Jesus, over Jesus's head? Yeah, I'll stop there. Dude, it makes me want to be a, a women religious <laughs> You know, that's, I, you know, a woman yeah, religious, saying, like, like there's something so beautiful that in Bethany, it's like, I almost see a vision mm. of, of mm. all of these, all of the brides of Christ continually in procession, joining her and giving wow. and, and, and I never thought about that, giving the, the sweet perfume of their whole lives 
to to Jesus and for him to receive it and like in a certain sense when you think of it in bios the whole the whole life of someone you know they used to you know when people refer to celibacy a lot of times what the you know they'll say uh, you know sister what a waste or uh, right. father, father what, what a waste, waste. And it's which which is which is a very kind of Judas kind of response totally. to say, "Gosh, you have so many talents and gifts." Oh, Why? Judas response! I've never seen that. And, and whereas Ooh. whereas it's it's like, no, you c- couldn't you use all these other things for such great things to transform the world Ooh. when in fact you've just poured yourself out and Ooh. anointed me for my burial rather than and made a full gift of yourself. You've poured yourself out. For the the only temple that matters, the, the only, only thing that matters. that matters, the only thing that matters, Ooh. and and that's that's where Ooh. where it, which is actually an interesting thing because the the priesthood. Um, I had a a, a very a very kind friend who wrote me a note and just thanked me for bearing the burden of the sin of the community, um, and and understanding that 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 part of the gift of of the priesthood is to bear the sin within the community with Christ. That's what the black of your clerics actually represents. Is bearing that sin. Is bearing the sin. But you have that little white spot right in the neck, right. which represents the light of Christ in the midst of our sin. And that's also kind of why my pants are kind of gray now. <laughs> <laughs> They're not quite so black. Yeah. I need to bear a little more sin around here, <laughs> you know. But 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 though the, your pants be as black, they will become white as snow. Hey man, do hit me out with the white pants, dude. It's like welcome to the disco. But, but like that, that's that's the thing that that in the priesthood you're actually your your gift is to be configured that you would always make self gift, right? And right. and that's actually a, that's actually a specifically manly uh, manly spirituality, right? The, gift, the... the making a, a gift of yourself it, it, with the crucified Christ in that special capacity, right? Th- that's why when I look at you as a father, like. Your your gift as well is to is there is a certain crucifixion to being a father that's yeah. that's not like other things. It's not right. like being a mom. You don't get to do the same supportive gigs. It's different. You got to kick the kids in the butt sometimes. <laughs> it's different. It is different. And different. and so like in a certain mm. sense, I'm seeing these really beautiful vocations found in Bethany and in that yeah. moment to to a, a that that anointing oh. of life. That's really beautiful. I've never seen it from that perspective before. Yeah. Well played, Father Peter. Well, thanks. That's a this a special thanks to the Sisters of Life too Indeed. for for kind of modeling that. It's so nice to be able to have women religious in my life that yeah. I that I get to see that special gift modeled. Yeah. Because sometimes yeah. in our lives it's it's become more and more rare. So to be able right. to have that full self gift modeled in that special way has been. Has been deprived of the world in a very in a very real way. That's why I want to yes. encourage, especially the ladies who listen to this, who have the opportunity to consider giving a full self gift yeah. to the temple that matters. To do it, to especially during this Holy Week, don't like, don't look back. Put your hand to the plow and and say, I will, I will follow after you, Lord. I'm in love. Yeah. <sighs> well, I don't know if we can say anymore. I think that's about it. So on that hap- on that happy note, it is a happy note. It's a, a, it's a blessed, a beautiful, blessed truth. note. That's the better word. On that blessed note, we thank you for listening. We hope you have a blessed Holy Week, and uh, we will see you soon. Uh, yep. Yeah. Bye bye.
The Word on the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.lankyguys.org. See you next week.